fish on. Hey, Radcast is on. Hunting, fishing, and everything in between. This is Radcast Outdoors. From the Porter's 10Cast Studio, here are David Merrill and Patrick Edwards. Well, welcome back, everybody. You have reached part two of the Elk Special with Radcast Outdoors. I'm here with Patrick Edwards today. Hey, everybody. And we're going to dive right into chasing more elk and things that I've tried to uh, tried to accumulate over years and figure out. So, you know, make sure at the end of the episode you hang out and check out the recipe of the week. We also have uh, launched the website. If you haven't gone over there yet, Radcast Outdoors, go check out. You know, the links and tips and tricks and recipes and has all the links to all our episodes. So some photos that we're going to start attaching to each episode. So again, Radcast Outdoors, and this is part two of the Elk Special. Also, don't forget to check out our social media. Follow us at Radcast Outdoors on Facebook, and you can also check us out on Instagram just to see what all is going on. And so, David, we touched on a lot of stuff last time, but we've got a lot more to get to. And so some of the stuff I want to talk about right now are, you know, specifically when people look at a bow and they get something from the shop. I mean, they're excited, but it's raw. It's not tuned. It's not set up really. You know, sometimes the bow shops will help you a little bit with that. But can you go into just a few of the things that you do um, before the season to make sure that you're tuned up and set up right. Well, I, by, by, by no means am I the end-all authority, you know, uh, on archery tuning and tech and equipment. You know, there's, there's how many hundred different styles of broadheads out there. Pick the one you like and works for you. But there are some, you know, consistent things that need to be done to, to get you to that point. And right off the bat, you know, I bought a bow from a big box store, in high school i got it home the the cams weren't loctited right the they they basically threw a rest on it quick shot it at a target kind of eyeballed a few things and out the door went and said good enough well you know i've i've since gone to you know you, you there's two trains of thoughts you can either buy the equipment where you have bow press and you can spend a lot of hours in learning how to properly tune and set up a bow or you can go to these places called pro shops, hand them your bow, and you know that's that's their job, that's their bread and butter, and they do a really good job. But we can touch on a few things, and one is paper tuning, right? I don't care what brand of bow you're shooting, it needs to be throwing the arrow center straight out of the bow. And there's a couple different ways to do that. There's some great YouTube videos, there's a whole bunch of knowledge out there, but before you do anything else that arrow needs to be, you know, flying straight off the string and straight towards the target before you pick broadheads, before you pick fletching, arrow spine weight, all that plays into it. And it's all kind of a little bit of a science, right? But I would say, you know, the first thing to do is make sure all your components are loctited down from your sight to your rest, to your stabilizer, you know, everything the, the one I've seen most often is the modules on the cams. We'll be, somebody will be shooting and they go, my bow, bow keeps getting noisier and noisier. Well, a little module's backing off and rattling on the cam. And it was little tiny screws, but they needed just a dot of Loctite. Tighten it up. You know, and so either get the pro shop, do that for you, or you know, make sure you know what you're doing before you're... Because those cams and strings are under tension. So you don't want to just be... You know, you really don't want to go out 
in your living room and grab a few tools from the garage and start tweaking on your bow. But back to some simple tuning things, you know, one is paper tuning. And you can, after you've been to the pro shop and they've set your bow up and you need to set the peep at the right height and set your draw length. Another thing I've seen, you know, guys want to over poundage right out the gate. 80 and, pounds, baby. Right? I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm, you know, and realistically, a heavy arrow out of a 55 pound bow at marginal distance will harvest almost any big game animal on the face of the planet, right? You don't need 85 pound limbs. And, you know, I personally, I'm running a really heavy arrow. I'm running a 450 grain arrow. I could be, I could be going as light as like 318 grains or something. I could move that and go a lot lighter and pick up some speed, but I lose kinetic energy. And kinetic energy is momentum carried by the arrow. So when that arrow gets to your target, it can do its job, right? And the, the easiest thing I would say is I can throw a ping pong ball at you. I can throw a baseball at you. Or I can throw up, you know, a, a big old balloon-sized rock at you. I can't hit you very hard with the balloon-sized rock because I can't throw it very far, right? I can throw that ping pong really fast, but when it hits you, it's not going to hurt. And with a baseball, you know, that's that... Goldilocks zone, that happy medium. So you can do some charts, and there's some great quick calculators online that'll give you, you know, there's front of center. That that's how much, and there's some arguments about how much front of center to run. But in the on a hunting arrow con uh, setup, 10% FOC. So that's 10% of the weight is on the front half of the arrow. You know, I'm my arrows run about 14% or so, and I have a little bit shorter draw length. So. And all these guys are worried about IBO speed. How fast is my bow going? Worry about kinetic energy. How much kinetic energy does my bow have? So most states have some pretty coherent laws as far as elk is 50 foot pounds or a 50 pound draw or something in that range and deer somewhere around 40. You know, you, you need you need to look at the specifics. But for the most part, you know, kind of a rule of thumb would be 45 for deer, antelope, 55 for elk. So as far as what's on the bow itself, what are some things that are must-haves? Like if someone just buys the bow, what are some must-haves on that bow? The the best rest you can afford, right? That's holding the arrow, and I'm a huge fan of dropaways, right? Because you it holds the arrow for the first few percent of the draw cycle as you as you launch the arrow, and then it drops out of the way, and you have no fletching contact. You know, and I had old flipper rests and then went to some other style rests and finally they came out with these dropaways. And as far as long range, consistent accuracy, a dropaway is one, actually getting the bow balanced. I don't stabilize it or not. I can shoot them either way, but having that bow balanced. And back when I used to shoot a single cam, you wanted that bow because the string doesn't have a perfect uh, travel, knock travel is what, you know, these newer bows with dual cams and these wide pocket limbs, they've got a pretty straight knock travel. So you don't need the bow to drop away. You just, the rest is dropping away. You just want it to do its thing, right? So back in the day, I used to have my bow so front heavy that it would spin 180 like the uh, Olympic archers. Now I want my bow to just stay right in place. So, you know, getting it balanced, whether that's a back bar, a side bar, a front stabilizer, I really like, I'll throw a tight spot a, a bone. Their quivers, 
you can take and adjust the angle and the position in and out. I don't ever, one pet peeve I see on TV is guys take their quiver off, lay it against a tree, and then go stock in on an animal with one arrow on their bow. I do not understand. My quiver never comes off my bow. I don't care if I'm tree stand hunting. I don't care if I'm ground hunting. I don't care if it's turkeys, squirrels, elk, black bear. Because if you take your quiver off your bow, and a lot of guys I see, they practice all summer with no quiver on their bow and no arrows in the quiver. Well, if you're going on an elk hunt out west, you don't want to leave your quiver 20 yards behind you. What if you've got to move 10 yards? What if you miss that first shot and hit a limb? It's happened, and that bull turns around, and you get a cow call and look back at you. You now have a second shot opportunity at 18 yards. Well, if your quiver's 10 yards behind you, it's it just every time I see that, that's one of my biggest pet peeves. Why are you taking your quiver off? You sure. know, practice with it on, and if it's if it if it's so off centering your bow and so heavy, put a sidebar on there and balance that bow back out. So, okay. you know, again, there's there's a ton of YouTube videos. There's a ton to learn, but getting your arrow flight perfect before you pick a broadhead, right? Because I've heard so many people say, "Well, that broadhead doesn't fly well," or "That broadhead doesn't cut well." Let's be really honest. Native Americans used a, a chiseled stone point, and I'm sure they sat around a campfire and argued about the merits of a wide one and a skinny one and a heavy one, and a, yeah. right? So this, this debate's not going to be ended here, and I'm not going to you know pick, oh, this is the best broadhead. I've used a dozen over my career, and I, I'm not going to say they were, none were far superior and none were far inferior to the others. Sure. So... Um another thing that I wanted to ask you about is scouting. So let's say, you know, you, you draw an area, um, what's the protocol or what do you think is the best practice for going to that area, checking it out and what should people be doing and looking for? Well, I mean, there's, there's a whole bunch involved in just picking that area, but let's say you've gone through that. You've talked to some other people that have been there, right? That that's the best place to start is try and get some local knowledge of any kind. Now, you're not going to get my honey hole, right? But, you know, elk in Colorado act like elk in Montana, act like elk in Oregon. They have some basic needs and there's some basic places you can find them. But like I, I spoke in the last podcast, they're, they're not mystical fairies that fly around the mountain, right? They leave footprints, they leave rubs, they drink in streams, they, they poop on places, right? And if you kind of think of it like a spoke of a wheel, if you find a little tiny feeder trail, that's going to feed to a bigger spoke that's going to feed to a bigger. And finally, you're going to get to an elk freeway that they have to use every day to go. But there's places like ridges, places like saddles, you know, water and bedding areas that are pinch choke points, right? Sure. So as you're, when you finally get to a new area, start with water. You, you got to have the water and they like to bed on thick, dark timber, usually north slopes, right? They can get, on a stormy day, a nice windy day in Wyoming, or Montana, whatever, they're going to they're gonna go hide in that north timber and, and bed down. You know, you'll catch them on the ri- ridges. are a great spot. It's, they don't live out in the, I learned this in Oregon, that the animals don't live in the timber, and they don't live in the clear cut, right? They go eat in the clear cuts, and they go sleep in the timber, but the place to catch them is right on the edge of where those two meet. So ridges are kind of the same way here in Wyoming, where the south face is all open, got all the good grass and sunlight, 
The north face is all closed timber. Might get some grass pockets where they'll feed, but typically their water is more on the north slopes and their food's more on the south slope. But if you find that ridge between the two, run up and down it till you find a fresh elk trail. You look in the trail and find some fresh tracks. Start following those tracks. Right. I, I think I'm going to get a pair of shoes that have elk tracks turned around backwards on them and start walking everywhere <laughs> to get people to track me around. But yeah, that's that's an important thing is you got to walk it to know these things. And I, I know a lot of guys like to do the Google Earth thing only, which Google Earth is an important part, but talk about why it's so important to actually walk it before the season. Well, if you don't Google Earth, you're, you're kind of going in 100% blind, right? But if you Google Earth and kind of circle three or four potential areas, and then you go walk into them, then you can get, you know, satellite can only do so much, right? And it it likes to flatten the ground out a lot more than it really is. You're like, oh, I can get there in five minutes. You know, you can just zoom 100 miles on Google Earth. It's a it's a, it's a different thing to walk it. But, you know, a big thing is, is, you know, elk don't like vehicle pressure. They don't like hunting pressure. They don't like people pressure. And depending on where your unit is, I can remember a unit in central Oregon that had logging roads all over it, right? And it was a big flat mesa up on top. You couldn't, the elk can't get more than a mile from a road anywhere, right? And it's pretty flat. So they kind of broke into smaller groups and found just little tiny folds and they'd go keg up in there and hang out. Here in Wyoming, we kind of have some pretty good hunting areas with grizzlies in them, but, you know, those elk can they can be a little less shy of the hunting pressure because they're they're dealing with grizzly pressure and that that makes them act a little different but again just getting some of that first-hand knowledge hike to some of those spots and the biggest bowl that i've ever had a chance at was at noon right there's a lot of guys that oh they think it's a first first light last light kind of hunting deal no i way we hunt is we leave before daylight and we come back after dark we might take a nap midday. You, you almost have to. Trying to trying to move for 15 hours or more. You know, and the elk do the same thing. So, But don't forget that noon midday hunt can be, you know, especially the bigger bulls. They'll put their herd harem to bed after feeding for the morning. They might get up and stretch, take a bite, bugle. They might be more apt to defend those cows while they're bedded instead of moving. When they're moving and you put pressure on a herd of elk, Typically, that bull, if he don't want to fight, he's going to grab all his cows and he's going to leave, right? So, you know, just, again, find some of those spots on Google Earth. Ask for some local knowledge of, hey, where's a trailhead? And then just get away from, get off the ATV, get out of the pickup. In, in Oregon, a little bit late in the year, I used to hunt logging roads specifically. But that was in coastal Oregon, and the elk would use the closed gated roads right but again that wasn't really a road it was just a overgrown elk trail so that's my advice is get just get there's no no replacement for boots on the ground info cool um that brings me to my next thing is when you're walking around those areas you're going to want to have some gear with you some essential gear and we'll do a full episode on kind of what all goes in the gear bag and why but just if you could list out just a few of the essential things that you got to have in your gear bag. 
So having been caught out once or twice, you know, and spent the night due to whatever circumstances, you know, it, they, they played a pretty dirty trick on us at guide school about four in the afternoon. They said, hey, we're going to go, we're going to just go glass some elk up and we're going to go for a quick hike, grab your day packs, right? And we hiked out and we were just glassing. We were maybe two miles from our wall tent base camp, but they turned around and said, okay, your client just act, you know, theoretically, hypothetically fell down and broke his leg. You're spending the night here till you can hike out and, you know, so we had to build some quick shelters and, you know, I had the clothes on my back for the night and that was a cold, long night. And then we've talked about the sheep hunt that I did the same thing, no tent and that it, it was freezing and cold that night. But as far as some essential gear, you know, backup call for whatever, if you're, if you're going to be using a call of some sort and, you know, practice and learn to use it, but a backup calling system like I talked about I've run out of water a couple times so an extra bottle of water really comes in handy when you you suck that hose dry but even that's not enough to sustain you for a day or two and I used to just drink out of streams all the time I never got Giardia but I don't want to risk you know if, if a guy's got a week-long hunt that he's worked all year for you get Giardia you just ruined your whole year of elk hunt right so i have tablets and a pump and having a way to get some backup water a little bit of extra food some sort of emergency shelter of some kind whether that's just a nice heavy coat you know but i don't i don't day hunt with a ton of gear anymore because we're in grizz country and i'm i don't like the grizzly bears to be honest with you mm -hmm. i mean it's it's way different to try and lay down and go to sleep at night when you're in in the kind of population density grizzly country that we're hunting so i like to just burn the miles and hike in and out and sleep somewhere i'm a little more enclosed and comfortable now i have done it a couple times a couple different hunts we've gone in and we've put bear fence up around our tents but still it, it's a tough night's sleep so you know bare minimum in a backpack is some sort of water some sort of first aid some sh sort of shelter of some kind whether that's a bivy bag, just a, a small tarp, some really nice rain pant coat. I mean, I've more than once just put my gear on, cuddled up in a rainstorm with my back against a tree and gone to sleep. And, you know, something to insulate you from the ground, even if it's small, even, you know, not in an emergency situation, but just think early morning you want to sit down and glass. If you have just a, a piece of one inch foam that's you know, six inches wide by 12 inches long that you can sit your butt on instead of sitting on that cold rock, you can sit in glass a lot longer. You'll be shocked at how much more comfortable that'll make you. Lastly, fire. I mean, the the nicest thing you could have on a cold night stuck out is a way to make fire. And, and again, you know, if you have one, you have none. If you have two, you have one, right? So I like to pack two Bic lighters. I just love Bic lighters. I have a Zippo, and then I have, you know, my little emergency thing is some waterproof matches. Uh, waterproof matches are pretty low on the, the list for me to start a fire with. I like the Zippo a lot, but it can run out of fuel. I more than once have no, neglected it a little long, and it's run out of fuel. So Bic lighters are, are great, and knowing how to find dry tinder and, and start a fire, will it potentially could save your life. And practicing it. We had to practice it in guide school. I mean, they said, okay, you got two minutes to make a sustainable fire. Go. 
right? And maybe you've got a big thunderstorm coming, you can see it coming, and you're like, I'm not going to make it back. Or maybe you've sprained your ankle and you're by yourself. I'll, I'll tell you right now, having a fire to keep you company all night, it's a huge mental changer. Sure. Good deal. Um, so here's here's another thing that kind of we we talked about a little bit is planning the hunt and planning maybe what state and what areas you're going to look for. So can you just talk for a minute about some of the advantages different states have or just uh, some of the things that based on the hunter and what their goals are, what they might actually look for? So uh, there's, there's again, there's a couple agencies that'll just start putting you in for tags and you can, you could go that route and call them and say, Hey, I just want quantity over quality and that that's a question everybody has to ask and I mean you can get right down into herd specifics and I really like to hunt areas that have a higher bull to cow ratio but you also want to hunt an area that has some relatively decent game density but there's some some of the central Utah units for big bulls and lots of bulls are are great right and they're 15 20 year draw you know, that's so if a guy wanted to start today and hasn't been putting in for those central Utah tags, you'll get it in two decades, right? But there's some northern Utah tags that are over the counter every year. But the success rate between the two, you know, those those southern Utah tags are in the high nineties, if not higher, percentage on big bulls. A couple of those over the counter northern Utah tags are in the teens or lower as far as success percent of success so you know within each of those states you're going to have an area that's a premium draw area and then you're going to have kind of a general over-the-counter area and the success rates in those two areas are going to be different right but you kind of got to weigh that out with you know is it and i personally would rather shoot a a five-point raghorn every year then go 20 years and shoot one monster, right? Because I like to eat elk, right? Horns are great. I like when, when the elk meat's gone, right? At the end of the hunt, when the experience is gone, all you're left with is a, a rack on the wall and a picture to say, hey, I went there and I did that, right? But for me, we eat a lot of <laughs> a lot of spaghetti with elk and we we actually have mystery meat between antelope and whitetail and mule deer and elk. It's, <laughs> it now just gets called burger. And what are we eating? We're eating burger of some <laughs> kind, right? But as you look at your states, and what's really cool is most of the states now put all this data out there. I mean, I know Wyoming, you can get on and you can look at their the, the success of drawing it, the success odds, right? And we have some units in this state that even for residents for elk are and I'll, I mean, there's a couple, there's a couple that come to mind, different units that are, and you can look them up. They're, they're a, they're a tough draw, right? They're, they're in the less than 10% success to draw. There's some other units, as far as resident, we can just buy a counter, over-the-counter tag and go hunt. But the quality and quantity of game you're going to see, and and most of it is, you know, hunter density per square mile. If you have even if you've got a ton of elk, but you've got a ton of hunter density, the elk are going to change their tactics and behavior versus if you have even medium elk density, but very, very low hunter density, you're going to feel like there's an elk under every tree because those elk haven't received the same kind of pressure and they just, they act different. 
Yeah, one of the things I wanted to give a shout out to Rocky Mountain Sports here in town because, I mean, that's a place you can go and take care of a couple of things you're talking about. One, you can get your bow taken care of. Two, you can talk to somebody that has knowledge about, you know, where you might actually put in, have a decent chance at getting some meat on the table or getting a nice, nice elk. But your local shops typically have people that are willing to share at least some information. Oh, yeah. And they have a ton of knowledge on, you know, like the bow. If you need bow tuning, you can go to a place like that where they'll actually help you set up your bow and teach you what to look for. And that's, that's invaluable, I think. Oh, you can, I mean... Gold tip, just just arrows, right? You can spend somewhere around 50, 60 bucks a dozen and get their entry-level arrow. You can spend 120 bucks a dozen and get their premium arrow. Now, you're going to find that when you start getting tight groups with, like, the gold tip hunter, which is a, a very good, you know, arrow, it's built correctly, and it'd be a good choice for somebody, and they're about 60, 70 bucks a dozen, I think. Or maybe it's a half dozen, but... You move up into their kinetic chaos line. You you shoot two of those groups of three arrows of each arrow. If you whack the hunters together too hard, you'll break one. I, those kinetic chaos arrows, they're they're built like a tank, but you're paying fifty percent more money for your arrow. But if you're, you know, if you're buying fifty percent more of the other arrows because you're breaking them more often, now you kind of spent the same money over a year or period or so. You know, so back to, yeah, Rocky Mountain, but, you know, other things to think about on, on the backpack side is blisters. You need some sort of blister remedy. Having mm-hmm. some sort of electrolyte replacement, you know, having some sort of backup, even if it's a power bar and some beef jerky and some trail mix. I mean, having having some food. But you don't want to have your backpack so loaded with, well, I've got my emergency sleeping bag, my emergency tent, my extra eight you know, 80 ounces of water, you don't want to have your day pack weighing 65 pounds and lugging that around. So you have all this, you know, and there's, so there's a trade-off and there's a balance and give and take. You know, I would aim for 20 pounds is probably a little light on a day pack. If you've got optics and trying to have game bags and knives and some food and some water, you know, let's say happy medium plus or minus, you know, 10 pounds around the 40 pound backpack will have sufficient clothing and knives and food and water and optics and you know so somewhere between 20 to 40 pounds is probably a realistic so that's why i said you know getting in shape and carrying you know the easiest thing to do is throw a couple used milk jugs with water in it in your backpack and go for a walk before your elk hunt all right so i'm going to throw out a state and i want you to just kind of give me you know, pros and cons of maybe looking at that state, some things that are good about it and some things people might be like, eh, maybe not. So let's start with Wyoming. Uh, fairly good elk density. Um, you know, the state manages for harvest success. So bull to cow ratios are pretty good. Elk density is pretty good. The minus would be there's no over-the-counter non-resident tag, right? So I'm trying to think of some of our listeners who are resident, non-resident, you know, i when my early career didn't have the luxury of going out of state, it was, I hunted close to home in my state and what tag I could get. But yeah, Wyoming has some, you know, for residents and for non-residents, some really great units that are relatively easy, a few years to draw. You know, um, like I said, one minus was really no over-the-counter tag, but you can contact, there's uh, 
outfitters get some tags they can sell. So there is that avenue if you have the affluency to be able to afford it. One of the big minuses is a bunch of the state is covered with grizzly bears. And that adds a level of, you know, preparedness and just awareness that, again, on a on a Central Oregon elk hunt, I have no problems of gutting an elk, leaving it lay overnight, and come back the next day. And, right, if I shot one late towards evening and no, not even a thought twice about it, might have a black bear. Cougar's really not. I mean, it just... Wolves or coyotes might get to it, but most likely not, right? You leave a, an elk, especially rifle season, laying on the ground here in Wyoming, you're going to have a grizzly bear on it. I mean, you just, you are. It's yeah. not it's not if you're going to. So there, that's for Wyoming. You know, we can move to a couple other states. Colorado is one that has some great over-the-counter tags, has some great units with some success, right? Uh, they're not known for big bulls. And, you know, some of our units here in Wyoming kick, kick their butt, right? But again, you got to look at... What and are your goals, right? What are your goals? Pretty much most of the states now are pretty competitive as far as tag price. It's not like you're going to see a 60% reduction by going here or there. You know, one thing cool about Wyoming is we have the reduced price cow-calf tags. You know, and those, the draw odds on those cow tags are pretty dang good. Right, so if you guys wanna, you know, you gotta you gotta look at the needs of your party, and we'll we'll go into what part what what you need to do that. But you know, just states to think about. What about Utah? Utah's a you know you again Utah's a great state. There's some really good stuff. Nevada has some really good. I've I've gone on a couple hunts in Nevada now, and big bulls. Not a lot of people get away from it, but heart tougher to draw. You know, Nevada's definitely a lot harder to draw. You got New Mexico, you got Arizona, you got Colorado, you got Montana, you got Oregon, California, Washington, Wyoming. Mm-hmm. I mean, even Idaho up in the panhandle, below those zones. There's, there's, and Idaho is kind of, there's some zones that are harder to draw, but there's also some over-the-counter zones. It's getting a little more popular and it's starting to get sold out quicker. But, you know, so each state has their pros and and cons and you gotta have to again boots on the ground but there's also you can get some of this data offline of the specific unit inside that and it it takes a little bit of education to be able to open the regulations read through and you know because they take and dissect and I, i like you know that wyoming does a very good job of counts adjust tag numbers annually some other states don't do that they just kind of they fall into a trap of we need to make x revenue we need to sell x tags we don't care what our success rate is and that's a for wildlife management that's a really bad trap for our our managers to get into is you know instead of managing for what the game can sustain right and what's really an ethical harvest they manage for a financial harvest off of the hunter right and so a simple example would be we have a bad winter kill this year. Last year we had 100 deer tags in unit X, right? We had a really bad winter survival. We had one here a couple of years ago, you know, and if they maintain and sell 100 tags next year, just going, oh, well, we hope that maybe hunter success will be a little less and it'll be okay. And you can, as a state or as a 
as an agency, they could get away with that for maybe a year. And if they have a, a really great winter survival and a great spring, right, it, it could even out. But what happens is you get two or three years of overharvest with hard winter kills and then a bad spring and maybe some extra predation. You get two or three years of that and compound and you don't move the tag numbers down, right? Then the population doesn't rebound. And now you've taken an area that was producing, you know, trophy quality mature animals and had, you know, relatively high hunter success rates. And you now no longer have that trophy class. You don't have anything maturing to replace that trophy class you harvest and your hunter success rates go down but people are still going so now instead of shooting a nice mature animal they're shooting a sub mature so the management on that end i think wyoming does a very good job of we we're still waiting to kind of see what the numbers tag numbers are it'll come out here pretty quick but you know that gets me into one other point i want to talk about and that is game shaming right I've seen gear shaming, and you know what? Some guy can't afford better stuff. Give him the, the pros and cons of, hey, you know, you could think about replacing your Walmart boots with a brand that actually are waterproof and don't give you blisters, right? That That's helpful advice. But just gear shaming, oh, you don't have the latest and greatest? Well, maybe that guy can't afford it. Maybe he's going on his one weekend off taking his boy deer hunting or elk hunting, right? And if they go out and they harvest a cow on a any bull tag or any elk tag, right? And you're like, well, you could have shot a six-point. You know what? I don't have the right to judge another man's harvest at, at all. And I really, I really don't like to see anybody saying, you know, and, and coming from the guiding aspect of there's some harvests some guys have made that I probably wouldn't have made that harvest. But you still tell your client, good job, nice animal, shake his hand, you know, because he's made that choice. And for, again, let's say the dad pulls up in the gas station with a spike deer, and you're of the mindset, well, if he would have let that deer live seven more years, I would have had an opportunity. And it, it comes from a, in my opinion, it comes from an angle of jealousy, right? It's jealous or envy or, you know, but... Selfishness. Selfishness. You know what? You, No man has an, a right to tell another man, woman, kid, child that that isn't an inferior harvest. All you should do is congratulate him and say, hey, you know, now, if you're running a ranch and trying to have, you know, a, a genetic program, you can set some limits, and, and there's there's a window there. But, again, a public land hunt where a guy, maybe he had that day to hunt all year with his son, and a cow elk stood there or a spike deer stood there, and it's legal, you, you need to leave him alone. Yeah, I agree. If you own the property and you want to set your own limits, go for it. But otherwise, let people do what they need to do. I, You know, I'm one of those people, I just want to fill my tag because I'm motivated by the meat. I'm not motivated as much by, you know, trophies or anything like that. I want to have the meat for my family. So Now, that being said, uh, a 380 bull elk that's 12 years old is going to pack another 100 pounds of muscle over a 300 inch bull that's six years old right mm-hmm. same thing with a you know a big <laughs> cow cattle in a field you know you get a big mature old bull is gonna pack more hamburger so you know people you say you can't eat the horns well i can eat the extra 30 pounds that big bull carries on his neck alone right sure so well let's get into a little bit of another important thing when you're planning a hunt is the party of folks that you actually 
go hunting with. And I know it's the same in the fishing world. It's important to understand the pros and cons of who's going on a particular trip, right? Just because there are challenges with different trips. So what would you say is important to think about on an archery elk hunt when you're putting together a party? There's there's a myriad of things, but one is, I mean, if are we talking in-state, out-of-state? There's some just just the travel to and from the hunting area. How are you getting there? Are you going in whose vehicle, right? Are you meeting up there? You know, and there's there's pros and cons to, hey, we all jump in one truck, we take one trailer, we load our gear up, we leave, we meet at my house, you know, and we drop all the vehicles off. Then uh, there's also, we all drive separate vehicles, but, you know, are we driving together? You know, so there's there's just the questions of where are we camping, and, but then you get into... You know, say one guy likes to hunt where we sit on water holes, don't call, don't move, right? We sneak in silent, excuse me, and then we, we just set up and kind of do an ambush. And then another guy in your party wants to rip a bugle every 15 seconds and stomp and, and chase elk. Well, you know, there's there's probably a happy medium between those two. You know, if I, I'll, I remember... I was down off a logging landing in Oregon, silently slipping into a small herd that before daylight had been bugling and had been up on the landing. And here come a, I won't name them for sure, but a, a business with a, a business truck with a label on the side and, and a couple of these kids, and they pull up on the landing, maybe 250 yards above my head, rip a bugle. I mean, they shut the diesel truck off, roll the window down, rip a bugle, stick their head out for less than 60 seconds, no answer fire up the straight exhaust diesel and roar up the mountain further right Mm -hmm. i those elk pretty much shut up and said you know so again i i remember those guys all over the mountain because i'm i before daylight was sitting there waiting for daylight and all of a sudden hearing some mewing and a bugle and three four hundred yards away on another part of the landing is a herd of elk and i'm like oh man it's sweet Right after daylight, here I've worked in, and these guys have basically come and blown my hunt. So there's some ethics, and, you know, there can be, it can be very difficult to get hunting partners to, you know, there's been some some camps that have had some pretty bad blood in them, and it's supposed mm-hmm. to be, this is supposed to be fun, right? So some things to think about, and, you know, it's, you know, as far as, like, in our group, we typically kind of, we have three or four hunters together. We, I, the fewest I want to go with is two, where we go grizzly bear hunting, and even in two, you know, let's say the morning call session, I call for you. The evening, you call for me. Now that can get a little one-sided when one guy can't call, right, or doesn't have the experience. So let's say you have a really experienced guy, a really inexperienced guy. As as a really experienced guy, you kind of got to take the the back seat and say, hey, I'm going to call for the, but. You know, as the inexperienced guy, you need to you need to at least offer or say or maybe work on your calling skills and say, hey, how can I get this better? That's mm-hmm. Michael Phelps. No, not Michael Phelps. Jason Phelps with Phelps Game Calls. He uh, <laughs> Here a couple weeks ago, he put out the Silent Series Elk Read. And if you got a, a guy in camp that can't call, I would suggest maybe buying one of those and giving it to him because I've heard some <laughs> really horrible. And when I first started out, and I by no means am I a good elk caller now, but I've heard some elk that can't call either. So, you know, I, I've improved, but definitely that's 
that's one of the hard sore subjects is when you got a guy in camp that can't call or can't call well and is insisting on doing all the calling. That can be that can be tough. So there's when you're putting a group of guys together, make sure it's guys you like and make sure you kind of want to hunt the same style, the same place, the same way. And, you know, like a, one thing one of my buddies turned me on to was if three of us are going on a trip back east or wherever, we're going three or four states away in one vehicle, right? Take an envelope. Everybody throws $100 in the envelope. When we stop for gas, when we stop for meals, when we stop for hotel, whatever, you know, we've decided instead of this argument that happens or, or discussion, well, I bought $67 of gas last time and you only bought $62 and, well, he hasn't bought gas yet and, well, I had a hamburger and you had steak. You know, no, we just, everybody says, hey, we're stopping here for dinner. Get what you want for dinner. We're stopping here for gas. We need gas, right? And when the envelope's empty, everybody has to pony up more. And then there's there's no feelings of, well, I'm carrying more of the load of this trip than you are, right? That It just makes it simple and easy. Yeah, I think goals are really important no matter what kind of trip you're going on, whether it's archery elk hunt or a fishing trip or whatever it might be, you should definitely assess the skill level of the people involved. And I think that you hit on one of the most important things is the ethics. If, if you're hunting with someone who's willing to break regulations or cut corners, that's not someone you want to go on a hunt with. It, it's not going to be worth it in the long run. I'll tell you that right now. Yeah. So last last little piece before we wrap this episode up is let's say you're successful on this hunt and you need to plan to be successful so if you're that's why we're doing this right yeah so if you're packing things to help get that animal out of there what are some things that are essential that people should have with them when they do get that harvest so you know there's there's definitely different (laughs) different levels of need for different, you know, I, my wife usually draws a cow elk tag and we go on a late season rifle cow elk hunt that that's 12 degrees or colder, right? Typically we, we don't have to travel too far. We don't have to get away from the vehicles too far. I feel a little sorry for the elk sometimes because they're just, they're out there. They're, they're little, little less fair chase on a late season cow elk hunt. Now it can still be difficult and, and, it's not a guarantee, but when you put that cow elk on the ground and there's a foot of snow, hook it up the four-wheeler and drive it to the truck and winch it up in the truck and go home, right? You don't have to worry about flies or meat spoilage or really predators. It's, it's a little more cut and dry, right? But as we talk about like an early September archery elk hunt where you can see 80, 90 degree days, you can't just go back to camp, hang that meat, and go back and chase more elk, right? So I've seen some guys put little walk-in coolers on the front of a trailer, their ATV trailer, right? They build an, and CoolBot has a really cool thing where it will take a window AC unit and basically you can take a Home Depot window AC unit, put it in any sort of insulated container, whether that's OSB or, you know, a really nice one. Coolabuck uh, is a company that actually has a it's kind of a cloth fabric. It's an aluminum welded frame, and the cooling unit is in the bottom of it. And, I mean, it kind of is a freestanding. You zip it together, you bolt it together, and you get to camp, and you could hang a whole elk in there easy, right? So most of the smaller towns out west here have butchers that, you know, make their living off of 
hanging meat. It's usually seven to ten bucks a day to go to a walk-in cooler and hang your elk. And we've done that a couple times where somebody will get a bull, we get it out. But you need need at least one sharp knife. Uh, Outdoor Edge came out with a replaceable blade knife that I actually did helping on a rifle elk hunt. We did three bulls in two days, and I didn't replace the blade. And it was still sharp. So that's a pretty nice knife, right? And being having the capability, if you don't have a stone or a way to touch your knife up, having a replaceable blade there. But I have a couple handmade Damascus steel knives that I really like too. So, you know, having the game, there's a myriad of game bags, but keep the meat clean. Learn how to process some meat. You at least got to process it enough to where it goes from a whole animal to manageable pieces to get to the to the cooler or the butcher and you know you can either we we've had a had a guy come with a trailer that had a little shelf and meat prep sink and everything and we fired the generator up in the vacuum sealer and packed it right there and put it nice in the cooler and we're done right but i've also just taken it to the butcher dropped it off and pick it up later packaged ready to go it it all depends on what your skill level is and what what the needs of the trip are but you definitely want to have some sort of meat prep plan before the harvest yeah that's you know again it's you're dropping a thousand pound animal and you need to be responsible for that meat so there's there's some pretty generic questions and answers there sorry but Again, like I said, you got options of butcher, you can hang it, you know, but you really need to be cognizant of what time of year it is, what the temperature is, what the predator situation is. Yeah, make sure you have rope. That's important. And also a saw. One of the most important things I've ever used in the field is once you harvest is having that saw available and rope to get it up in a tree or, you know, help tie it down to whatever you need to tie it down to rope is super important we we use paracord but yeah one guy can't and we try and find a, a dead leaning snag that's leaning against another tree so that you can you know you need to get it 12 feet off the ground with with our bears around here it, it's <laughs> you know if if you could stand on and touch and reach or even get close to it it's not high enough but mm-hmm trying to pull on that paracord and push a hind quarter of an elk up you can't do it by yourself it's you can't pull and push it's too there's too much friction and it's too heavy so but we typically run through to get you know we we have six bags right you got four quarters a bag with the back straps and the tenderloins and then a bag of neck meat and any other scraps we can cut off there but i typically have six game bags in my backpack with about 150 200 feet of paracord to get it all up in a tree that's awesome well david thanks again for going through just some of the basics and we'll have future episodes where we can expound on some of this stuff because i know there's a lot more you have to to discuss but um it's good to at least give people an idea of some things they should be thinking about now um before the season shows up which it'll seem like a blink of an eye and it'll be here and you'll be up in the mountains chasing those elk so it's important to to be prepared from your bow to your scouting area to your gear to your hunting area you need to test and refine and question why am i carrying this piece of gear why am i hunting this drainage really you know and if you don't know why contemplate it right and ask and if you're not being successful take a look at each one of those from your bow tune to your just take a look at each facet and go where am i weak where can i find somebody that maybe is a little stronger and 
be inquisitive, right? And it can be, you know, one, one final thing, you know, I had GPSs in the past. There's two different companies now that have a, I mean, Onyx and base maps. You can get, you can turn your phone into a GPS. And I'll tell you that is, that that is one thing that is worth its weight in gold when you're at you know, four o'clock in the morning trying to hit a meadow or a ridge or a trail or 10, 11 o'clock at night when you're trying to come back out, you know, with 60 pounds of meat on your back, if you're lucky, hitting the right trail can, you know, just be a great peace of mind. And so good luck out there hunting, you know, like I said, just test and refine and upgrade gear and question. And eventually you're, you're going to acquire enough knowledge and gear and skills that it's all going to click and together and you're going to start seeing some success but more tags is probably the the biggest piece of advice is put more tags in your pocket yep well again thanks everybody for listening we can't do this without you so we really appreciate everybody that listens Um, you can find our podcast a number of different ways Um, you can do it through the county 10 website Um, thanks again to county 10 for helping us do this and then also you can go to our website uh, ragcastoutdoors.com we've got all the podcasts, we've got recipes, we've got all kinds of stuff there for you so that you can check that out. Um, and again, we, we need your help um, to kind of be a little bit more visible. So if you like it and you believe in this podcast, the best thing that you can do is go to your iTunes where you listen to it or Spotify or wherever it might be, download it, rate the podcast. That really helps us out a lot. And again, we can't do this without our listening audience. So we really appreciate everybody that that listens to this podcast. Um, And anytime you all want to give us feedback, go to our social media, go to our Facebook page at Radcast Outdoors. You can go to our Instagram to shoot us us a little line of maybe something you want to hear or anything like that and we're we're happy to to listen to it and and go there so yeah let us know what you like what you don't like what you want to hear more of and we'll we'll keep it coming all right thanks again everybody now it's time for the radcast outdoors recipe of the week once again here are david and patrick welcome to the radcast outdoors recipe of the week This week I'm going to share with you my Asian fish cake recipe that was inspired by a couple of folks. So I want to give a quick shout out to Big China Outdoors on YouTube. Um, He had given me some inspiration on how he prepared this and I did a modification of that recipe to suit my specific tastes. Also my friend Christina who I used to work with from Mongolia. Thank you for inspiring me on this recipe. So I want to share this with you. Um, This is on our website at ragcastoutdoors.com. So if at any point you're like, man, that's a lot of ingredients and I don't remember what all he said, you don't have to, you know, go back on the podcast and rewind and listen to that. You can actually go to our website and find the full full recipe and how to do this. Um, I actually was inspired to try doing this with sucker meat, but you can use cod, you can use any kind of white meated fish that you want. Some people use catfish. Um, So what you're going to need is you're going to need one to two pounds of that fish filleted and deboned. Okay. Then you're going to need two eggs, six green onions chopped, four to five cloves of garlic crushed and diced, one sleeve of saltine crackers, one tablespoon of Worcestershire sauce, one tablespoon of soy sauce, one tablespoon of oyster sauce, one tablespoon of tapatio, one tablespoon of salt, 
one teaspoon of pepper, one teaspoon of red pepper flakes. And now that you have all those ingredients, you're going to need a couple of things to do this job and do it well. So you're going to need a food processor, you're going to need a fillet knife, and you're going to need a fryer and some canola oil to be able to cook all this up. Um, I also like to have saran wrap, so I'll take you through the process. First, you're going to take your food processor and you're going to grind up the saltine crackers into like a fine breadcrumb. Put them in their own bowl. Set it to the side. Then you're going to get your meat, um, your fillets of fish. You're going to cut them up into small chunks and put them through the food processor. This is a really important step, especially if you are using something like suckers that have lots of pin bones in them and you need to get those broken up because those are really hard to take out otherwise. So make sure that you do that, especially if you have suckers that you're going to use for this recipe. Um, so you're going to do that and you're going to get that meat kind of crushed down and cut down to break up those pin bones. And then you're going to set that to the side. Then you're going to take all the other ingredients. You're going to put it into a big mixing bowl. You're going to mix it really well together. And then you're going to take little balls of the um, processed fish that you have, that fish cake. And you're going to either make them into patties with your hands or you can take them and lay them on saran wrap into little balls put saran wrap over the top and kind of smush them down into a little cake then you're going to want to heat up your um, your canola oil and your electric fryer or propane fryer and you want to have your oil no less than 350 degrees and you don't really want it any higher than 400 degrees because you don't want to burn it and you also don't want to have it too cold because the oil will actually absorb into the meat. Um, but you're going to want to cook those on each side for about three to five minutes until they turn golden brown. And then you're going to take those out and serve them. And I will tell you, this this was a surprise to me. I, I've never done fish cakes until this spring. And doing it with Sucker was awesome. Um, my kids thought that it was really, really good. I'm excited to try it with other white meat fish. Um, so get out there. Give it a shot, and again, if you want this full recipe, go to ragcastoutdoors.com, click on the blog section, and go to that recipe.